Welcome to Coastal Front, the show where we explore the insights of remarkable leaders. I'm especially thrilled to introduce Dr. Melissa Carmen Lee, the dynamic CEO of the Chinese Canadian Museum right here in Vancouver. Born in Vancouver, Melissa combines academic rigor and artistic flair with degrees from institutions like McGill and Lancaster. She's been a senior lecturer at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and a scholar in residence at Simon Fraser University. Before her current role, she was the Director of Education at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Internationally, she's helped launch Hong Kong's Taekwon Center for Heritage and Art, orchestrating 200 programs in its first year. Today, as the inaugural CEO of the Chinese Canadian Museum, she's on a mission. Melissa's steering the museum towards fulfilling its vital mandate to honor and celebrate Chinese Canadian history, contributions, and living heritage here in British Columbia. Today, we'll discuss the museum, past policies affecting Chinese Canadians, and community safety. Melissa, it's a privilege to have you on Coastal Front today. Thank you for having me over, Andrew. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. Well, look, we're going to talk about some of the uh, past discriminatory policies in a moment, but I first want to have the folks who may have not heard about uh, your museum, because it just opened two months ago, to hear about it, because it's, it's had actually quite a bit of uh, media coverage, but it had just opened two months ago. So first of all, for the listeners and viewers who are tuning in, can you tell us a little bit about what the Chinese Canadian Museum is? So a little bit about those that have not heard about it or been to our museum. We're the first Chinese Canadian Museum in Canada. We reside in the oldest building in Chinatown. It's a completely renovated contemporary building, but it um, was renovated to look contemporary, but it's originally heritage. And uh, we opened two months ago on July 1st, it's, which was the 100 year anniversary of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And we show a multiple of different exhibitions. Uh, we have different programming and uh, we're just happy to be here in this historic year. And I believe the building, if I recall, was donated by Bob Rennie. Is that correct? So the building was not donated by Bob Rennie, but Bob Rennie is one of our major don donors, the Rennie family. Uh, so most of the renovation of that building was the vision of Bob Rennie, who moved in in the early 2000s, and it was partially his uh, offices where he had his staff and then partially it was also a place for him to show his private art collection and uh, he resided there for many decades and then uh, last year we approached him and asked if he would be open to selling to us uh, so, so that we could have the first Chinese Canadian Museum in that building. And through some discussion and negotiation, he agreed to sell to us. But his family also donated a major amount to us at the same time to get us started. Well, I'm a big fan of Bob Rennie, and that doesn't surprise me, that story. Uh, he was a guest of our show last summer. So There's a story he tells, which I always repeat because it's such a compelling story. Uh, Bob Rennie, his collection, his own private art collection, is all about social justice. So not many people know this, but that's the way that he collects art and the artists that he chooses from. So when we approached him and asked if he would sell the building, at first he 
you know, didn't want to. He poured his love and heart into renovating this building. But then he thought about it and he thought about it. And then he thought, well, if the Chinese Canadian Museum is opening in Chinatown and I'm still here, how would I feel if I see them move into a lesser building? Because this is the best building in Chinatown. So with that in his mind, he decided he had to sell to us. Okay, that's a good story. Yeah. yeah. Um, what inspired you to become CEO of the museum? So this job is a job that you don't say no to. Um, as you know, I was born in Vancouver. I am Chinese Canadian, many generations. Uh, on one side of the family, we've been here about three, four generations. Uh, my parents were part of the Hong Kong, Vancouver migration wave of 1967. But myself as a Chinese Canadian, uh, to be a part of opening the first Chinese Canadian museum in the country, to lead and to put work towards that is something you don't say no to. If I were to walk through the front doors of the museum today and spend say an hour and a half at your museum, what's something that I would learn or experience um, that I would maybe be surprised by that I otherwise wouldn't really maybe expect? So first of all, an hour and a half is kind of not enough. Okay. Uh, we have three different exhibitions. We have a beautiful rooftop patio. Uh, we have so many different things uh, that you can see and experience in the museum. There's everything from an entire period room's floor dedicated to the Yip family, where you're really immersed in the way they used to live in the 1930s, down to the wallpaper, down to the photo booth, uh, to the historic schoolroom. But we also have galleries with 40-foot high ceilings. And in those galleries, we have our major exhibition, The Paper Trail. We are really learning about Canada's forgotten history of the Chinese people. Uh, and then we have our intro gallery where you learn about Chinese Canadian migration. We have a little gift shop. Uh, we have lots of tours um, and we have lots of friendly museum assistants to guide you around on the way. Okay. Well, that's good. So definitely make sure I plan more than an hour and a half. Yeah, I would, you know, really suggest doing it in the morning and then going out across the street to Dynasty Seafood a restaurant for dim sum or a Newtown Bakery. I always tell people to plan it so that they can spend a couple hours at the museum and then have a meal right after. I like the, that. That's a, that's a good, that's a good, pro I like that's a good proposition. Um, in the uh, process of, of being involved in the launch of the museum, can you share any inspiring stories um, that kind of connected with you personally? I think that happens every day. I think it happens every time we have these visitors that travel across the country to come and see our exhibitions. Uh, we get a lot of mail, both email and paper snail mail, to talk about how much this museum really means to them. Uh, for a lot of families across Canada, a lot of Chinese Canadian families, they never thought that their objects or their precious items were worth keeping or worth putting in a museum. Hmm. And for us to be here and for us to 
you know, be interested and put these artifacts on display really changes the narrative of what's precious in Canada's history. Wow, that's interesting. So with uh, these families coming to your museum, um, I'm assuming some of them maybe with something to, to contribute. Do you see maybe over the next five years or 10 years, the museum's sort of, um, I guess, uh, library expanding? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's difficult to say uh, because for us, we're a new museum. There's actually not a lot of new museums that open. There's a lot of museums out there and they add to their collection. They have new shows, but brand new museums that open are more rare. Yeah. And for us, a lot of what I'm thinking about is how do you open a museum in the 21st century? A lot of museums are doing deaccession, meaning that they are giving away or getting rid or repatriating their objects that, you know, they have they don't have storage space or the way that it was originally given to them were stolen goods and they didn't know uh, from different countries. So these were the museums of the 19th century. So us as a museum of the 21st century, how do we think in a new way about collecting and telling people's stories and histories. So I'm kind of thinking through all of that as yeah. I think about how we build towards the future. The BC and federal governments have provided, from what I understand, is roughly about $55 million towards your museum. Can you maybe um, expand on that a little further? So it was a process uh, to get us started. Uh, it in many ways began with uh, the apology from the provincial government for the wrongs done to the Chinese Canadian community. And then it moved into an MOU between the province and the city. Um, and during Horgan's government, uh, Horgan made a commitment to build a Chinese Canadian museum. And what um, the NDP government did at first was give us a million or so to get us started. And at that time, what the community did was create a working group. And that working group did much um, discussion and also canvassing across the province with many different community groups. Uh, you know, wherever you go, whatever little city or province, you know there's a Chinese restaurant right? Like that's how Chinese immigrants got started. They opened the Chinese restaurant. So all those restaurants have Chinese Canadian communities, right? Like many generations. So it was really reaching out, canvassing communities from all across the province and trying to see what did they want? What does everybody want? So it was a lot of work. That's how the Chinese Canadian Museum started. It was a community museum for everyone. Uh, and then last year, um, the province gave us an additional $30 million, and we used a lot of that to buy the building, um, the Wing Sang building on 51 East Pender Street from Bob. Uh, and then we put $8 million in an endowment. So another thing that a lot of people don't know about museums is they rarely make a profit only from revenue, or though maybe you do know that because you're nodding. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, 
it's not uh, necessarily, you know, you, you're supposed to make revenue, but usually your revenue only covers one third of your overall cost. So all sustainable museums usually have an endowment. So that was really important for us also to begin on the right foot and to begin with an endowment as well as owning our own building. So that was the kind of key milestone. Uh, and then this year in March, um, the province gave us an additional $10 million for operating and to continue with our renovations. Uh, federal government came in also um, at over $5 million. And the city of Vancouver came in as well with some extraordinary funding as well as a construction grant. Oh, wow. And what did the city of Vancouver do? They came in at a little over half a million, okay. yeah, which is a lot for the city. For sure it would be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, well, that's good. Um, when we do a lot of our work at Coastal Front, we often like to you know, understand about financial accountability. Sure. Um, what steps have you taken to ensure that, I mean, this is a largely you know, taxpayer dollars effectively that have helped fund this. Um, what steps have you taken to ensure uh, that this is being managed properly? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we're very conscientious that it is taxpayer money. Um, we actually, the majority of our board um, have a background in finance okay. and in accounting. So I'm very lucky in that way that we have strong financial management skills on our board. Yeah. Um, we have, we are very conservative with our investments. It's also mandated by the government, the conservative nature of the way that we invest. Um, and I think like any museum that is thinking ahead, we look to build our endowment and live off the interest. Yeah. That is, I think, Makes the sense. eventual goal. Um, we have visitor number goals. Um, every year, um, our marketing director has a formula as to how many visitors he hopes to bring in, um, which will be c related to how much marketing spend he's allowed to have. Yeah. So these things are really important. Uh, like any museum as well, we're going to depend a lot on rental venue as well as gift shop venue. So okay. these are other revenue avenues that we are exploring. Okay, good. Well, it sounds like it's been well thought out. Um, Melissa, I want to spend quite a bit of the time now talking about some of the historic, I will describe them as a sort of discriminatory, discriminatory policies that uh, Chinese immigrants and Chinese Canadians have faced in this city, in this province, in this country. So we're going to go through them. And I'm assuming that a lot of this is going to be something that you can actually see uh, at the museum. So, but obviously with your history, I'd like to get your comments. And we're going to kind of go to a lot of, in a bit of a chronological order. Um, as I said earlier, I, you know, before in our call yesterday, before we f uh, did the filming today, um, growing up here in British Columbia, I'm 49 years old, you know, you didn't really learn much about the Chinese immigration or contribution to the, to our society, other than the fact that they helped build the railway. Um, and I think you kind of resonated with that being a, you know, product of the BC school education system yourself. Um, and so using ChatGPT, I kind of educated myself and there's a lot, there's actually a, like a quite a deep history. Um, so we're going to go through those. Let, let's start with the very earliest one, which is, uh, was the, the railway, um, the Canadian Pacific Railway construction, you know, really leaned heavily on, 
Chinese workers, and they faced very dangerous tasks and actually were, it's well known that today that they were received a lower wage than other workers. Um, and, but yet their sacrifices, you know, they, they had a pivotal role in, in uniting this country. So maybe to start, can you talk a bit about what, you know, someone coming into the museum might learn more about the contribution that Chinese immigrants and Chinese Canadians made to building our national railway? For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right, Andrew. I also, going through the Vancouver school system here, really didn't learn about Chinese-Canadian history beyond very vague mentions about the railroad and the head tax. Uh, for us at the Chinese-Canadian Museum, it's really about correcting that impression and really supplementing parts of history that perhaps were not taught uh, in school. Chinese Canadians, they came over because of the railway, but they also came over, I mean, the first documented history of Chinese Canadians in Canada actually is 1788. And the Chinese wow. first came over as carpenters. And they came and they actually interacted with the indigenous people. So even that part of history, we- 1788? 1788, yeah, you caught. Mm -hmm. and, and they came from across the Pacific? They came on British boats. Yeah. And so not many people know this. I, you know, just through the research that we did on our ground floor exhibition, which is an introduction to Chinese Canadian migration, we really feature that. So everyone always thinks our story begins with the railway. With the railway. Like myself. <laughs> Even ChatGPT didn't <laughs> give me anything before that. <laughs> well, Maybe after this interview, ChatGPT will update. <laughs> yeah, maybe, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so we actually begin in 1788. That's okay. how we begin the exhibition. And then next we go on to the gold rush and the railway. So, so tell, let's, let, let's talk about that. The 1788, mm -hmm. there's uh, people from China. They're carpenters. They're yeah. from, from what we've known today as mainland China, referenced in, or Hong Kong. and. Yeah. During, during that time, most Chinese so most Chinese immigrants at that time came from four different counties in southern China, which is what we now know as Guangzhou. Um, and they were different villages and counties. And those immigrants came all along the West Coast. So same families from uh, Vancouver to San Francisco, same villages. Um, and I know this is probably a very ignorant question, but did they come on their own choosing? They weren't they weren't brought like as like slaves. I mean, they were brought on their own accord or yeah, they were okay. carpenters. Okay, yeah. So you know, yeah. So we begin with that history, um, and then we you know we talk about the gold rush because that's a major part of our history, and we talk about how a lot of that was really to kind of find a better life, and even Yip Sang, the man that our building is named after, who was a 19-year-old orphan. He came over from China really to seek gold. But when he came here, he realized, being a really smart businessman, that he could make more money not panning for gold, but um, living off all the infrastructure that yeah. surrounded the gold <laughs> rush. So that's how he made his yeah. fortune. Selling the pans and the, all the equipment. and Yeah, yeah. and he became um, a CPR agent. So he helped um, CP Railway 
bring over Chinese workers. Well, because that railway is such a big part of uh, most of our education, maybe can we expand on that a little bit more though? Like, can you talk a bit about, for example, this um, lower wages? Like what, what, maybe speak to that sort of injustice that happened at the time that we don't really know much about. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, at the time there was a lot of racism against Chinese people. And um, even our first prime minister, John A. McDonnell, said that the railway would not be built if not for Chinese workers. So there was no other option. Either we would use Chinese workers or the railway wouldn't be built. But the way that it was a kind of compromise was that Chinese workers would be paid less. Um, and at the same time, uh, there was the head tax, right? So the head tax was at first $50, which uh, only Chinese people, um, those of Chinese descent, had to pay the head tax. So it was $50, and then it was $100, and then it went up to $500. And just to be clear, when we, we say head tax, this is like an immigration tax? Like yes. you want to come to Canada and be and, and live here and work here? You got to pay $50? Yes, if you are Chinese. If you're Chinese. Only if you are Chinese do you need to pay this tax. Okay. So if you're coming from the States or from Mexico or from Europe, you didn't have to pay it. You didn't have and to pay it. And $50, but we're talking, this was introduced in 1885. Yes. So the amount of money that was collected altogether was 23 million Canadian dollars. In today's dollars, it's about a billion. Wow. Uh, and just to give you some context, uh, the CPR, the Canadian Pacific Railway, cost $23 million to build. So in essence, the Chinese not only physically built it, they paid for it. They paid it. for it. That's amazing. Um, so if I'm a young Chinese male wanting a better life for myself or potentially my family, and I'm coming from China, I mean... I probably don't have $50 on me when I show up on the shores of Vancouver. So was it something that you, you had to kind of, it was a debt you had to pay off? Is that the idea? I think for a lot of men, it was a debt. It was borrowing. It was also families that would pool all their wealth together to pay, to have one man come over. Really? Um, and so it was a family pooling to pay the tax. And then you'd have this one man come over and hopefully find gold and then be able to bring the rest of his family over. But, you know, in the end, that um, man couldn't because then the 1923 Chinese Exclusion Act was enacted. And so after the head tax was the Exclusion Act. And because of that, a lot of families were separated for 24 years. Wow. Well, we're going to go to the Exclusion Act in a moment. There's another event that happened um, in between that, which was the 1907 riots here in Vancouver. Um, can you talk a little bit about what these riots were, um, how, what caused them, and and who was involved? I mean, I think it just speaks to really the anti-Asian sentiment at that time and what really led to the Exclusion Act. I think that major riot is really an example of the feeling at the time among Vancouver's population and community, um, how there was a sense that you know, Asians were taking away jobs um, from white settlers. And uh, there was a real kind of resistance towards any kind of integration of multiculturalism. And it erupted in that way. So it, it was riots of, uh, of European Canadians against uh, Asians? Is yes. that what it was? Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and in your museum, do you have any kind of artifacts or pieces about this that kind of you can learn more about? So the best way to learn about the 1907 anti-Asian riots is actually I'm going to point to a professor, Henry Sang. He uh, is a professor at Emily Carr, and he just wrote a book on which is called the 1907 anti-Asian riots, which we actually sell in our store. And uh, I don't know if it's relevant, but there's actually a panel on September 20th okay. that is all about the book and the 1907 anti-Asian riots. And I'm moderating the panel. Oh, and great. Henry and two at other, your museum or at SFU. At SFU. Yeah, okay. and Henry and two other uh, professors will be also talking about the history and the context of the riots. How did the after those riots happened? Um, but before the Exclusion Act, because that, that's a solid, you know, roughly about, what, 15 years before that happened. How did the Chinese, the local Chinese community kind of recover from those riots and respond? I mean, I think, you know, it's a difficult time because there was so much overt racism. I think that Chinatown really came into being because... Chinese were grouped to live in that area. Traditionally, Chinatowns are always in the most impoverished, poorest areas of any city because um, other settlers don't want to live there. And so there's always that kind of tension, which there is now, even today, right. uh, between like the most impoverished and the heart of historic Chinatown. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Well, we're going to go into that uh, near the end of our conversation, too. Let's talk about the Chinese Ex uh, Exclusion Act. Um, it was implemented in 1923 and it lasted till 1947. Um, so can you start off and maybe explaining to the average person who probably doesn't know much about it, uh, what the Exclusion Act was? Well, first of all, you know, the first thing I thought of when I learned about the Exclusion Act is it ended in 1947, so to me, that was not very long ago. When you think of these things no. where Chinese were excluded or racial discrimination laws, you think that it happened a really long time ago, like the head tax, which was in the 1900s, but Chinese were only excluded in 47, which was the 20th century. It was only repealed at that time. Yeah. So to me, that is really astonishing already that that history is so close to us in the present. Yeah. Uh, it happened because for many reasons, uh, it happened because they had the Canadian government had raised the head tax to $500 and they felt that that was not enough to dissuade Chinese immigration. The other reason is that the railway was finished. So there was not that kind of urgent necessity. And also I think politically uh, there were politics that had changed at that time, the political climate. So, you know, as I said, a lot of families were separated at that time where the men had already come over to Canada and had meant to bring his wife and children, but could not uh, for 24 years. During those 24 years, only eight Chinese were allowed to come over. Really? Uh, yes, it's documented. Um, and actually, I just interviewed um, the descendant of a veteran, a Chinese-Canadian soldier, and his mother, an Australian-Chinese woman, was one of the eight to come over. And she was only able to come over because 
she was a veteran's wife and they made a special exception, but they actually had to pass her entrance in parliament, that one person. And I think through this, they realized how ridiculous it was, these exclusion policies. So families were separated, but there was also a whole generation of men that were unable to get married. Um, They lived here in Canada. There was no interracial marriage. And so many of them... And there were disproportionately, I guess, more men than women... Yes. Living here. It was majority men that came over because that idea was that the men would work first. So there's a whole generation of men which we call, and we talk about the exhibition, we call them the Bachelors of Chinatown because they grew old. They lived in Chinatown. They were never able to have their own families. And so children were really precious in this community, in our community. And we did a whole documentary about how the children who are now in their 60s, they remember their parents telling them they had to go and, you know, just say hello to uncle, um, say hello to grandfather. And they didn't understand why they had to be nice or, you know, with these old men. But they realized the parents wanted a way to give their children to have an extended family for these men that were never allowed to have their own children. Uh, And so there were these kind of ad hoc ways to create families in Chinatown because of the Exclusion Act. Wow, that's really, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. That's very touching. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, Do you see how that's maybe changed the culture of uh, Chinese Canadians in Vancouver specifically? I mean, obviously the act applied to all of Canada. It was a Canadian, it was a federal law. It was. Yeah. But I mean, most of these immigrants were coming from China directly to here, not to Calgary or Toronto per se. Um, Yeah, majority, majority came to BC. I think if you look also in our exhibition, we have a map of how many Chinese Canadians there were in each province at that time. Oh, really? Majority is BC. Yeah. Uh, but there were some all around the province, including Newfoundland. So in 1923, Newfoundland wasn't a part of Canada, but they enacted their own Chinese Exclusion Act, which is why their exclusion certificates look different from the rest of the country. Right. Um, and so we actually feature that in the exhibition. And the curator interviewed the Newfoundland Chinese family um, and really told their story in the exhibition. Yeah. It's quite fascinating as I start to kind of think of the math of like 1778, I think is when you said the first Chinese yes. came to Canada. Obviously, in the last 20 years, we've had this huge influx of, of Chinese immigrants coming into Canada and especially into Metro Vancouver. And to think of this weird weird period of 24 years and only eight people showed up. Yeah. That was a huge void. It's a huge void. And, um, you know, there's so many repercussions of that. There is, of course, that past repercussion of the bachelors and of families being separated, but as I was saying, um, so the mayor and his family came to visit us just last week, and I was saying to one of his children that part of the reason why it's taken us so long um, to have our first Chinese-Canadian mayor is because of laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act. You know, a lot of people say, wow, there's, you know, a huge Asian population in Vancouver. 
why is there only the first Chinese Canadian mayor now? Yeah. And part of it is because of laws like the Exclusion Act, where, um, you know, immigrants of many different nationalities, they don't have the tools or vehicles to move up higher in power, in seniority, in wealth, yeah. uh, because of laws like the Exclusion Act. Wow. Wow. It's really powerful. And we can learn about this if we go to the museum. Yes, you can learn about this. <laughs> um, the last thing I want to talk about as far as, you know, the, the sort of deep history of Chinese immigrants, and in this case, be more Chinese Canadians, is around what you talked about is World War II, which I think also led to the end of the, probably helped end the Exclusion Act. I mean, uh, like, like uh, many Indigenous uh, veterans, there's a number of Canadian, Chinese, Canadian veterans that people don't necessarily know about. Um, and during World War II, I mean, these people were as loyal as as everyone else. They were beside fighting, you know, fascists in, in Germany yeah, uh, no, in, in France. Sure. So yeah. can, can you talk a bit about, like, how did Chinese Canadians, you know, how did they serve in the war? And, um, you know, how were they treated when they come back? Was it different for them than other veterans? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, you know, Chinese Canadians, they weren't necessarily allowed to fight in World War II, but they would enlist anyways. Um, and they volunteered, um, even though they weren't the preferred soldier, right? So there was no law saying, you know, Chinese Canadians specifically can't fight, but it would be a kind of selection process, right? Um, but there was a very special troop uh, that were all Chinese Canadians that we talk about in our exhibition. Um, there was a special force, uh, 136, and they were specifically chosen uh, to fight um, and to basically parachute behind en enemy lines into Japan. So these Chinese Canadian soldiers, they had to pretend to be Japanese and really kind of infiltrate. And it was an elite force because they had to learn things like munitions. They had to learn, um, you know, how to integrate into Japanese culture. So it was really handpicked. Um, and we interviewed one of the veterans' uh, sons, and he talked about his dad, how he really had to go through a training that was really almost similar to James Bond, right? Because he was a spy behind enemy lines. So it's an incredible story, this troop. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, there's my own ignorance. I assumed that these people had gone to Europe, but actually, right, of course, we had a you know, war in Japan as well. Yeah, that was a key um, point for us as well. I think also to say that, you know, part of the reason why Chinese Canadians really insisted that they wanted to fight in the war was one, because of patriotism, but also because they knew that if they showed their patriotism in that way, that it would help get the right to vote for Chinese Canadians everywhere. And it was something that happened after World War II was over. Uh, Chinese Canadians received the right to vote. And a large part of that was because of enlisting in the war. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that they can today. And and was the voting ability to vote or not vote, was it tied to the Exclusion Act or was it they were separate events? Uh, they were separate events. Yeah. So when, when was the last time in Canada or in B.C.? a Chinese Canadian not allowed to vote? Um, I think that they were only allowed to vote after the World War II. So I think okay. like 
I'm not sure when 45 women, or 40, yeah. women were allowed. We oh, should women. ask ChatGPT. Yeah, we should. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there any other, um, I mean, we've covered quite a few topics and I do want to get into a uh, talk about, you know, safety. You mentioned earlier about how most Chinatowns around the world you will find in the most sort of impoverished neighborhoods in cities. So I do want to talk about neighborhood safety because obviously our Chinatown here in Vancouver is right on the edge of the downtown east side, which has had some real challenges in the last 20, 30, well, probably longer, 50 years, but uh, especially in the last decade. But before we go into that, just is there anything else that I haven't kind of touched on that'd be worthwhile noting that, again, going back to that original question, if I walked into your museum and I'm not going to be there for an hour and a half, we'll spend two hours there, two and a half, and then I'll go for my amazing lunch. But is there is there anything else that uh, I would be excited to see or inspired by or surprised by going into, into your museum today that we haven't kind of covered? I think it's important to... Uh also go up to the third floor and see our historic schoolroom because it actually is arguably the oldest schoolroom in Vancouver. It was founded in 1914. Um, it was established in 1901. And back then, uh, schools were just simply a room. So one room, which would be the schoolroom, would be that entire school. Uh, and so Yip Sang, he had 23 children, and a lot of the children learned there, but also children around the neighborhood. He had 23 of his own children, or he, he was had, a teacher of oh, 23? Oh, no, no, no. He had three wives. He actually had four wives. One wife was in China, but three wives lived there with him. Um, and it was all, you know, amenable as we know, because I think the second wife helped pick the third wife. First wife helped pick the second wife. Uh, 23 children. At one point, some of the descendants, which we interviewed in a documentary, Mel Yip said that at one point when he was living there, there were 80 Yips in the building and they had uh, two bathrooms and one kitchen. Wow. <laughs> and this schoolroom that's on your third floor, is it a um, is it actually where the schoolroom was? It is. Okay, it so it's not like you just, you know, kind of created a... Uh, a sort of uh, an idea of what it would have been. It's actually the location where the schoolroom was. It's the actual schoolroom. Really? So Bob um, actually didn't really have it open to the public this whole time. Uh -huh. And when he took over the building, the building was dilapidated. It was a complete mess and he had to renovate everything. But miraculously, that one schoolroom was intact and remained intact from that time to the chalkboard writing that really? was on the wall on the chalkboard. So he preserved it all these years and he framed the chalkboard so that it would be preserved forever. But it was, you know, used as their boardroom. It wasn't open to the public. So we've opened it to the public for the first time. Um, and you can go in there and see how it has been preserved all these years. Wow. So it's actually That's a very pretty special. special. Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay, Melissa, this has been great. Let's, uh, let's, uh, change this conversation to the physical location where your museum exists today. It's in Chinatown in Vancouver on the edge of the downtown east side, which has had a lot of challenges. Now, um, we know that there's been a 7% increase in violent crime um, reported uh, since basically uh, from pre-COVID period uh, in general, but we also know there's even a larger rise specifically in sort of Asian hate crime. Um, 
Can you maybe talk for a moment about any noticeable improvements that have happened in Chinatown since Ken Sim, a former um, guest on Coastal Front, um, has become mayor? I'm assuming he's had some hopefully positive impact. Sure. Um, you know, I I think that uh, it has been positive since Ken has been elected. Um, he's made it a real cornerstone of his campaign promise, which he is delivering on to really focus on Chinatown revitalization. Um, it has been dangerous, um, and it is also distressing to see uh, the drug use and also to see the poverty around the streets of Vancouver um, and on East Hastings. But I have to say that for us in Chinatown, we do feel more safe now that the encampments are gone and the tents. It's made a big difference in foot traffic. Um, and how people come down and see us. I think that, you know, the mayor opening up an office in Chinatown is a real commitment to the neighborhood. He opened it up uh, during the summer. The office is called... Just to be clear, this is the mayor's office? He's got like a satellite office, so to speak? Or... Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's a satellite office and it's in the building that the city owns. I think it's called Chinatown Plaza, where Floda Restaurant is. Okay. It's just right on the ground floor. And it's called uh, the Alexander Gumyao office. The reason why, why it's named after him is because Alexander Gumyao was the first born Chinese Canadian in Canada. Really? Yes. And his certificate is also in the exhibition. What year was he born? Uh, no, we need to ask ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you can look that one up, Kieran. Yeah. Wow. So, so he's opened up this office. Obviously, yeah, he took down that uh, tent encampment. I think it was a lot, it was last summer, if I recall. Um, and so you're starting. I mean, would you describe Chinatown as a family friendly area today? Yeah. Because I know I, you talked to me yesterday about your experience of Chinatown as a child yourself, and your mom sure. would drop you off and. Yeah. Maybe you should tell that story. It's a neat story. Sure. Uh, you know, Chinatown of the 80s and 90s is the Chinatown that I remember growing up here. My grandmother uh, went to church on Sunday at the Chinatown church. And my mom and I would go for dinner with her at the local diner, Goldstone Diner. We'd go pick up bakery goods and you know, the I give this example as a reason of how safe my family felt. I'd be seven years old and my mom couldn't find parking because it was so busy. And so she would just drop me off in front of the bakery and I'd run out as a seven-year-old kid, go and buy bakery goods and wait on the street until with she cash. Yes, with cash. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably had to count the change afterwards to make sure you showed your mom that you got the right change back. Exactly. Yeah. And so, well, though, actually, those bakeries still only take cash, just so you know. Okay. There's still no credit card <laughs> at those bakeries. Um, but, but you know, like she'd drive around the block and she completely felt safe that a seven-year-old would stand on the street, on the sidewalk, uh, and wait for her to run around. Um, you know, for myself my own seven-year-old, I don't think that I would do that because the streets um, are a little scary still. Um, but, you know, as I said, there has been huge um, waves ahead and there has been huge advances uh, since 
you know, lots of the people in the community are banding together to make Chinatown back the way it was, um, the way it was in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Ken is doing a lot and um, other neighbors. Carol Lee is doing a lot for the yeah, neighborhood. We're having her on next week. Yeah. yeah, she's she's really tireless in making Chinatown a great place to visit. All the festivals that we have, one that she's organized this weekend, uh, Light Up Chinatown, I think um, has really done a lot in trying to revitalize the neighborhood. Yeah, well, that's good. It's nice to hear it's turning a, turning a page. I think for us, too, we hope that we can be a cultural anchor to bring people back to Chinatown. And so that is something that we hope people will feel more comfortable doing. That's great. I want to uh, take a few minutes for us to let the listeners and viewers know about you know, how they can get involved. Um, I'm assuming to start, the museum is a charity. And as you mentioned, most charities, you know, run a deficit. You know, they're not fully uh, just off their, whether they have an endowment or through their, um, you know, they, they need donations. Um, so maybe you can talk a little about that and, and how people can contribute. Um, but also let's talk about your location, your hours. And I love your idea of, of going and visiting and then having a lunch at one of these restaurants nearby. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really some of the best food in the city is in Chinatown. Yeah. Um, you know, we have everything from a Michelin star restaurant, Kisa Tanto, to, really? uh, yes, uh, to really great bakeries that have been around since I was a kid. Newtown Bakery to Dim Sum, Jade Dynasty. This is not a food podcast, though, right? No, yeah. We can kind of, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's another podcast. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's many ways to contribute. And I have to say that we've been really lucky with our community. We've had a lot of large donations. Um, we have um, the Poi family, um, Vivian Poi, the first Asian Canadian senator. Her family has donated $2.8 million uh, to the museum. We had uh, Doreen um, and Philip Lau. Uh, Doreen is from the daughter of David Lam, uh, the first lieutenant governor, Chinese Canadian in BC. Um, their family donated a million. Um, and even my own board chair, Grace Wong, uh, she and her husband have donated over a million uh, for the museum. So those are the larger donations, but we've had smaller donations too. And each donation really is part of the support that we're so grateful to receive from the community that we hope people will continue to support us. Yeah, that's nice. What about the, um, the actual location uh, and hours, and what is the cost if I wanted to take my three kids and my wife to to your museum? Well, you know what? Um, so we're at 51 East Pender Street, uh, and it's pretty cheap to go. Um, adults are $15, seniors are 12, and students are 10. But we actually just launched a family discount. Okay. So you, your wife, and your three children could totally go in for even cheaper than that. Yeah. Um, even the mayor, uh, he came in and he did what a lot of people do after he finished the tour and the exhibition, he bought a season pass. Okay. So that's the best deal of all. If you buy an annual pass, you actually get a free ticket so you can bring in a friend. It's okay. cheaper than actually just buying yeah. the, the admission ticket. Yeah, great. 
Um, I, I imagine that the, probably the parking in the area will cost me more than the uh, than the museum itself. Well, you know what? It yeah. used to be that way, but we've actually just, or the city has actually just lowered parking in Chinatown. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. That was Smart a specific. <laughs> that yeah. was a specific ask that we in the neighborhood wanted. Yeah. To bring people back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Melissa Carmen Lee, CEO of the Chinese Canadian Museum in our ch Chinatown here in our own Vancouver. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. And uh, I look forward to taking my family down and, and going and visiting and learning more about what we've just talked about today. So thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to speak to you today. Yeah.